Welcome to the second lesson in our series on um, prophecy, specifically Daniel and Revelation. We're going to uh, wrap up our introduction to prophecy today and uh, take a, a quick look at chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1. The, where we want to uh, start with, and you should always, you know, if you're following along from home, please print the handouts in advance of the of the class so that you have a the the visuals in front of you. We will re- refer to them frequently. I heard from uh, a number of people that I was going through the scriptures too fast and and that it was hard to keep up. So uh, what I'll do for the folks here in class, I'll, I'll provide kind of cheat sheets. I hate to call it that, but I'll provide sheets for you that have the scripture references that, that we'll be looking at in class. And uh, for those of you who are listening uh, on podcast or, or via your computers, the, you know, the best thing to do would be to just hit the pause button and find the passage. I will try to always give the scripture reference first before I read it so that so that you have a chance to hit pause and, and go find it. We're going to start out today looking at the use of symbols uh, because sim- symbols are used prevalently throughout prophecy. We need to understand how symbols are used in general in the scripture because God has always communicated to man through the use of parables and symbols as well as in plain language and it's it's rarely difficult to tell the difference between when he's speaking plain language and when he is um, speaking in a parable or, or with symbols the symbols usually are immediately defined or can be defined elsewhere in scripture and, and we're going to look at one today because we're going to run across the symbol uh, a stone a symbolic stone when we study Daniel chapter 2 so we're going to kind of do a little preview here by looking at how stone is used symbolically elsewhere in Scripture. So take a look at your handout. Here's a handout called Stone. And when you look at this handout, you see that, you know, it could be just little, a kind of rock. Like in Genesis 2.12, you know, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And clearly, he's just talking about rocks in the ground. Or Genesis chapter 11, verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Very clear to understand this literal translation. You also occasionally find the word stone used as a simile in, or even a metaphor in Scripture. And here's a simile for you. Exodus 15, verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. So, you know, there's a there's a simile. And we understand that intuitively. There is no need to look further. They're just he's just telling how still they are. It can also be used as a verb. This particular word is used as a verb as in, you know, when they when you stone somebody, you know, throw stones at them till they're dead. So all of these meanings are very obvious from the context it's it's usually equally obvious when the word is being used symbolically. So throughout throughout this study, and this is the first example I'm giving you, when we come to a symbol that we need to take a look at, I will go through and pull out every place in Scripture 
that that word is used symbolically. In fact, I pull them all out and then I go through and I, you know, sort sort between the ones that are literal clearly and the ones that appear to be symbolic or have a, a second meaning. And throughout this, I, I am omitting the passages in Daniel and Revelation that use the symbol, in this case stone, because that's what we're trying to interpret. So, you know, we don't want to get to an, into a circular reference there. So let's take a look and just kind of skim through here how stone is used symbolically in Scripture. Starting at the beginning, I use, you know, you know, there's lots of uh, Bible software out there. I happen to use QuickVerse. I enjoy it very much. And it gives you the ability to do this kind of research very quickly. So I would you know, highly recommend if you're going to uh, do some st- serious Bible study that it's, you know, it's well worth the investment to, to uh, get at least a basic uh, Bible software study tool. There's a lot of them out there. Let's look at Genesis 49, verse 24. This is Jacob or Israel's prophecy concerning his sons and out of the middle of Joseph's uh, prophecy, it says it refers to the shepherd, the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Hmm. So it's saying that a shepherd is going to come out of Jacob. He is the mighty one of Jacob or the defender of Jacob, the stone of Israel. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here, here's a stone that's being set up by the Lord. Isaiah 8, verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. If you look at that, at verse 14, then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. So this, this is the first place you see the symbol defined. It says, God himself, the Lord of hosts, becomes a stone that Israel stumbles over. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So again, you have a stone being set by the Lord. It, you know, it can be kind of hard to understand, and that, that was a very symbolic context, but it's clearly a stone being set by the Lord. In Matthew 21, verse 36, and in similar passages in each of the Gospels, there is a parable 
where Jesus is telling a parable about a renter, you know, um, who is is renting some land, renting a vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard is trying to collect his rent. And he sends some employees out, some slaves, to collect this rent, and the renters throw them out. You know, they beat them up and throw them out. He sends some more slaves, beat them up, throw them out. Finally, he sends his son to collect this rent, thinking to himself, you know, they got to respect my son. But when the vine growers, the renters, saw the son, they said, ah, look, here's the heir. Let's kill him and we'll get his inheritance. And so they did that. They took the son and killed him. And Jesus says, what do you think that owner of that vineyard is going to do when he finds out they killed the son? And, you know, the people who are listening to Jesus say, well, he'll, you know, bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he's going to rent the vineyard out to someone else who will pay him the rents. And then Jesus turned to them and said, did you ever read in the scripture where it said the stone which the builders rejected became the chief's? cornerstone this came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes therefore I say to you the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you Jews and given to a people producing the fruit of it and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust and if you go on in Acts uh, chapter 4 verse 8 Peter talks about Jesus and the miracle and the fact that Peter is on trial because he's healed a sick man. Um, and, and he says, look, you know, we did this by the name of Jesus Christ. It's because of, of Christ, the one you crucified and that God rose from the dead. It's because of Jesus that we are able to heal this man. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So right there, again, you have the symbol defined. The stone which the builders rejected. This stone set by the hand of God that we've heard about in all these scriptures is Jesus Jesus is the stumbling stone. It talks about it again in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 30. Uh, It develops this theme some more, saying, you know, the the Gentiles actually accepted Jesus, so they are going to be made righteous because they accepted this great gift of Jesus. Whereas the Jews, Israel, who had the law in the first place, rejected Jesus and have therefore stumbled over the stumbling stone, which we now know to be Jesus. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, actually says, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit. So here again, very explicitly says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
And it goes on further to say that we are being, we ourselves are being built into, on that cornerstone, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's the, Jesus is defined again as, as being the stone, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. So when we get to Daniel and see the sim- references to a symbolic stone, there's this stone that's not cut by human hands and it crushes the statue and, we know we can know immediately and with confidence that stone is Christ Jesus. No guesswork required. So the next thing we want to look at is um, how numbers and time are used in prophecy. The counting of time varies from culture to culture. And when we interpret scripture, we need to be aware of the writer's culture and interpret time spans accordingly. For example, today is Wednesday, and if I told you that three days from today I'm leaving on a trip, what day would you understand that I'm departing? Thursday, Friday, Saturday? It would be Saturday, right? I'm leaving on Saturday. That's how time spans would be counted by Babylonians who who were fixing a study in the book of Daniel. They'd omit the first day. So we would omit Wednesday. If it's Wednesday and I say I'm leaving in three days, you understand I'm not leaving Thursday, I'm not leaving Friday, I'm leaving Saturday. According to my, the notes in my NIV study Bible, um, which is a great resource to get a study Bible of some sort and read the footnotes, uh, if a king came to power in 608 B.C., his first year would be counted by the Babylonians as beginning on the New Year's Day following his accession to the throne. So it's very similar to the way we just counted those three days from today. So if he came to power in 608, his first year would be 607. Remember, this is B.C., so you count backwards. And his third year would be 605, so 607, 606, 605. However, in a Jewish culture, the present time period is always counted as number one. So if, a, if it's a Jewish writer and a king came to power in 608 B.C., 608 would be his first year, and 605 would be his fourth year, not his third year. This is also how Jews counted during the time of Christ. Thus, when Jesus was crucified on a Friday and arose on a Sunday, he was, by the way his culture counted, rising on the third day. Both numbers and time have significance and follow conventions. So we just looked at the time conventions. Let's talk about numbers. Numbers, just like we could see the word stone, a physical object used as a symbol, numbers can have a symbolic meaning as well. And, you know, we're not, I'm not talking about, you know, symbology in the sense of Bible codes or Da Vinci codes or tarot cards, none of that. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about If we come to a number in a passage of scripture that is a symbolic passage, we, just like we would look at a physical object elsewhere in scripture, like we looked at stone, we need to look at the number elsewhere in scripture to see what its connotation is. So let's, you know, do one of those so you kind of get the feeling, the understanding for what I'm talking about. You should have a handout that is titled 11 and 7. We're going to look at those two numbers, the number 11, the number 7, as they're used symbolically in Scripture. And look at the connotation associated with those numbers. 
just like in the other, you know, there's times when it just seems to be literal, as in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Deuteronomy 1.1. It's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. That appears to be literal. But in addition to the literal meaning, in addition to the literal meaning, there is also often a symbolic or spiritual context. Um, let's do a, a quick comparison. Um, for example, as we go through these scriptures, look for uh, patterns or similarities in their usage. In Hebrew, we're going to look at 11 first. 11 is represented by a combination of root words that have a variety of meanings. So the root is most frequently, it has a root meaning of united, but it can be one, any, man, some, together. It has, you know, lots of, of meanings. So let's look at, at, at the number of 11. In Genesis 37, verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. You'll recognize that passage as being Joseph's dream. In which he, he had a couple of dreams that you know, greatly inflamed his brother's anger and ended up causing him to be sold into slavery. And is how Israel ended up in Slavery in Egypt, ultimately, but um, in this in this passage, Joseph dreams that the sun and the moon, who he interprets as his mother and father, and eleven stars, who are his eleven brothers, who are you know being doing very bad things to him, very bad people. His eleven brothers um, are bowing down to him. Judges sixteen, verse five. The Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. This is Samson and Delilah. So here's the Philistines coming to, to Delilah saying, you know, try to find out how Samson is so, so strong. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So here we've got, you know, two verses. We've got 11 brothers that are not doing right. Um, and now we have 1,100 pieces of silver that are uh, payment for to Delilah for betraying her lover, Samson. Judges 17, verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So here we see 1,100 pieces of silver being used in the most blasphemous way possible. They are being melted down and made into an idol. Second Kings, verse, chapter 23, verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. You know, that could be certainly a literal meaning, but 
you see it associated with an evil king. And again, in 2 Kings chapter 28, verse 18, you see an almost identical passage about the king Zedekiah, who reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's kind of it. That Those are the passages in the Bible that talk about the the number 11 in any sense other than purely literal. And clearly, they, it needs to be taken literally in all of those pa- passages. Uh, numbers generally should be taken literally. But there is a connotation of, of bad and evil associated with, with that number in the scripture. So if I came across in um, some symbolic prophecy 11-somethings or an 11th-something I would, you know, a little flag should raise up in my head and I should say, you know what, I bet that that connotes evil and I bet that 11th thing does does evil. So let's look at the number seven. See, see, um, there's a whole lot more verses about seven and we're not going to really go through each one of them in detail. But it doesn't take long to get the gist of how seven is used in the Bible. The first thing is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. The seventh day, God completed his work. He rested on the seventh day and he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Uh, so, so there you see the seventh day was the, you know, it was the end of the, the completion of the world, the creation. Genesis chapter 4, verse 14. The Lord says, whoever kills Cain, Vengeance will take on on him sevenfold. So here we would, you know, say, well, it's this is the enough vengeance. It's a a measure of vengeance. It's 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 the a wholeness, a, a completion of vengeance. In Genesis chapter seven, um, talking to Noah, you will take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, all the birds of the sky by sevens. Um, and after seven day, more days, I will send rain on the earth. It says, of the unclean animals, just take two. But of the clean animals, take seven. So here's the first time where we begin to see seven associated specifically with what is good, as well as being clearly a connotation of enough. Seven animals is enough, because that's all Noah needed to take on, onto, the, onto the ark. And when you look at Genesis, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 22, there's a story about Abimelech and Abraham. Abimelech is a title. It's like Pharaoh. It's a, it's a title of a king. It's not a name. It's a title. So Abimelech and Abraham are having problems because their herds are so great that they're fighting over water wells and there's just not enough, you know, resources to go around to support them both. So they have to sit down and make kind of a peace treaty about what they're going to do. And after they've made this peace treaty, Abraham takes a flock of sheep and oxen and gives them to Abimelech as a sign of this covenant. And then Abraham does something peculiar. He goes and he walks over and he takes seven of the lambs out of the flock and puts them by themselves. And Abimelech says, what does that mean? Why, Why did you do that? And Abraham says, you will take these seven lambs out of this flock from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So here the seven becomes a pledge. It's, it's associated with a pledge. Um, 
And it is intended to be enough of a proof to Abimelech that Abraham is telling the truth. In Genesis 50, uh, you see Joseph. Joseph's father has died and he is has returned to Israel to bury him. And it says he observed seven days mourning for his father. Here again, the, the term seems to be enough. Uh, Exodus 12, 15 through 19 talks about seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Uh, and, and this is this is we're talking about Passover. Uh, seven day, on the seventh day, uh, you will not do it. You will have a holy assembly. You won't do any work for seven days. No leaven found in your in your homes. And then in Exodus 16, you see the setup of the Sabbath. Six day or really the first time is this is in they're talking about manna in the wilderness, and God's going to provide manna for six days. But and six days you shall gather it, it says. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. The Sabbath here is associated with holiness, with rest, with completeness, wholeness. And there are many, many times uh, in the Bible talking about the seventh day being a Sabbath and a, and, uh, a, a holy day, a day that you should rest. There are, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 37, there are instructions for a lampstand in the tabernacle. Uh, you'll have a set that would have seven, seven uh, lamp, uh, lamps on the lampstand. Uh, in Exodus 29, verse 37, for seven days the, the Israelites were to make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. So seven days of consecration was enough to purify the altar. This is also the um, purification that was was required for uh, a sin offering. If a priest sinned in Leviticus 4, verse 3 through 7, the priest was to dip uh, his finger in the blood of a bull and sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord uh, as, as uh, atonement for this sin. Seven, again, here you're seeing it's associated with holiness and with enough, with, with a completeness. Uh, let's see, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Again, enough. Um, you can skip through. You can read, you can read through these, these verses uh, on your own. The last one. Is in Romans. There's, there were a few I skipped here, but the, they're on your handout. But the last one is in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, where God says, "I have God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew." Or do you not know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, "Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. They are seeking my life." And what did God say to him? What was the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So you see, again, 7,000 men being the remnant that God kept out who, of, of holy men who did not bow a knee to an idol. Seven being enough. It's very much like the, the, the animals on the ark. 
So you see this, and these are all of, I didn't like pick those script, only those scriptures that fell into this pattern. These, every place that it looked like it had any symbolic meaning, it was this meaning. So it's amazing how consistent it is. And if you look up the meaning of the Hebrew word for seven, which is Sheba, it's defined as the sacred full one. Meaning, it, per Strong's, it comes from the word, root word Shaba, which means be complete. So anytime we run across seven used in a symbolic passage of scripture, we should be thinking that seven means complete, enough. The, like I, we say in Texas, the whole enchilada. And lastly, you know, we've talked about time, we've talked about numbers, we've talked about symbols. The last thing we need to look at is world history. Because prophecy is, by nature, a foretelling of future events. Now, since this prophecy was given back in ancient times, some of these future events have now occurred. And it's a very wonderful thing to see that. We are sitting in a vantage point where we can look back and absolutely see the fulfillment of some of these prophecies. And that gives us confidence, or should give us confidence, that we can believe utterly in prophecies that we have in the scripture that have not yet been fulfilled. And we should look and watch and wait and learn them and be aware of the prophecies that are not yet fulfilled that we should be looking for. And we we need to know their significance and understand their meaning because in that way we will not be led astray. So I've got a great visual to show you. Um, unfortunately, people are, are listening um, by, by website, by podcast, don't have this exact visual. There is a handout, uh, that, uh, a timeline that you, that, picks up the major parts of what we're going to talk about. And so if you're listening via recording, you should just print out the timeline. It prints best on legal size paper. Otherwise, you've got to have a magnifying glass to, to read the print. But um, here in class, I have this great book called uh, The Time Chart History of the World. It's by Third Millennium Press. Um, and this the one I've got was published in 97. I think you can still you know order them online. I'm, I'm not sure if they're still in print, but I, I know you can still get them. If you go out like to Amazon.com or someplace like that. But what's cool about this is you can unfold. And if everybody, you know, will come around on one side of the table, we'll, we'll look at this together. You can unfold this timeline. And it starts from the very beginning of nations. And if you remember your Bible, where did nations start out? Where was mankind divided into nations? The Tower of Babel. Actually, they're in the land of Babylon, probably in uh, very close to, to, to where Daniel was. He was he was taken into exile in Babylon. So if it wasn't in Babylon proper, it was very close there in that in that part of the country. That's where man was divided into nations. And if you look at these these streams kind of coming out from the Tower of Babel, you will see mankind dividing into various uh, nationalities. You, you see the Chaldeans, from, from whom came the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, you see the Canaanites, uh, which, which is, you know, the land of Canaan is where Israel, the Jews, uh, settled. The prom- where the promised land is, you see Egypt and, and you see Asia, China coming out down here. 
And as we go over to the right, you see these major streams and you begin to see how they begin to diversify. There's, you know, little offshoots as, as other nations, nationalities begin to, to arise, more kings. Each of these lines in this grid is 10, uh, 10 years. So this is a very long timeline that will, you know, as we fold it out, it'll, it spreads most halfway across the room. But, but what's great about it is you can see on this timeline actually where the big world powers started. And you can see visually the scope of their conquests. So if you look along here, everybody's rocking along just fine. And then all of a sudden there's this big blob in the middle. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. That is Babylon. So you can see uh, Babylon starting out here. And, and it's the first kind of big blob or world power that we see on this timeline. And if you progress, you see that ultimately Babylon is conquered and taken over by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. So if you look down here, you see the Medes and the Persians and they're kind of um, fighting in and in and amongst themselves. And uh, ultimately the, the Persians dominate the Medes, but it's very much of a Medo-Persian empire. And it conquers Babylon and, uh, and it's a bigger empire than geographically a bigger empire than, and covers more people, more kind of sub kingdoms than Babylon ever did. So you see it's a bigger blob and it lasts a longer time. It's this big purple part here. And then you see all of a sudden this big red line where Alexander the Great comes. He's Greek and he utterly conquers the Persian Empire and takes over a whole big, huge portion of the world. Uh, the, essentially, these kingdoms are, are wrapping themselves around the Mediterranean. Each successive empire becomes larger and more powerful uh, in, in the world. And so you see just, bam, all of a sudden, in just a period of four or five years, Alexander the Great conquers the known world at that time. And uh, what's also interesting here is that Alexander dies very young at like at the age of 33 he he uh, lives a very dissipated lifestyle he gets sick and he dies suddenly well he dies and there is nobody to take his place and what ends up happening after a period of about 20 years of fighting ultimately four generals emerge in control of the greek empire and they divide the greek empire up geographically and and you can see that here you can see these these kind of kingdoms coming off of the greek empire but they're they're still greeks it's still you know the hellenistic period it's still the greeks it's just that they've begun to divide the world up into sections ptolemy rules egypt and palestine or you know where where the israelites are Uh, seleucus rules syria which is you know the territory um kind of northwest of Israel. Cassander rules Greece and Macedonia and Lysimachus rules uh, Bithynia, which is Asia Minor, where uh, Turkey is today. So this is the very first time you see the world as, you know, within a big empire like this, begin to have geographical divisions. And this is where, where I would say the division of East and West has its roots. Um, and 
then look what happens. You kind of see starting down here, gradually this this Rome, the the Roman Empire begins to grow. It's not an empire at first. It's a it's a kind of a democracy. They're ruled by a triumvirate at first. It's a republic, the, the Roman Republic. You see, gradually it begins to grow, and bit by bit it takes over the entire Greek Empire and then some. And it is huge. Look, as, as we expand this timeline out, you see that, that it is bigger than all of the empires that came before it. Uh, ultimately, uh, you do have Augustus, Caesar Augustus, proclaiming himself as, as emperor. And I've drawn a, a line on your uh, handout to show you that it is during... This very initial period, during the rule of the very first Roman emperor, that Jesus is born. Isn't that amazing? And, and so it's this period of time that we focus on so much as Christians in our Bible. And the, we, what we don't often see is the political turmoil that Jesus was born into. And the, we don't understand why the Romans were so threatened by Jesus calling himself a king. But you can see they are just now taking over the world. And they take it very seriously when someone calls himself king or is called by king and has a great big following. Um, and we're going to talk you know, more about that time period. But look how long the Roman Empire lasts and how many nations and nationalities it overtook while it was while it was in power and then look what happened at the end of the Roman Empire uh, as it began to decline all of a sudden we begin to see nations emerge that we recognize today you see nations like Britain there's France Germany Scandinavia Spain these are names nations still in existence today and as we expand the timeline further, no more do you see a single world power. You don't see people taking over the whole world in here. You just see all this plethora of nations. So when you look at this timeline, and we're going to use this timeline throughout our studies of prophecy, but when you look at this timeline and you read the first chapter of Daniel, where on this timeline is Daniel? He's, that's right. He's back on, on your handout. There's a little gold star with an N in it. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's where Daniel is on this timeline. When you're looking at the first chapter of Daniel, what, what strikes you as you study this? You know, if you, if you look at this chapter, Keep in mind that Daniel was very, very young at the time he went into captivity. In fact, he was probably a teenager. He was likely between the ages of 15 and 20. Probably, you know, we're going to say 17 just to pick one. But he's very young. And it's even possible that Daniel and his friends may have been castrated. The official that they um, were given into his care... His title was Prince of Eunuchs, uh, all translated and some of you are translated as chief official. The word official 
can be equally translated as eunuch. So it's entirely possible that Daniel and his friends were castrated when they were taken into captivity. And yet we see throughout this book, Daniel's utter calmness and faith. He is able to maintain his faith in God despite what has happened to him and becomes ultimately a trusted advisor to this king and is able to witness to this king and perhaps save the soul of this king as we'll see in our studies. The uh, captivity of the Israelites was foretold over and over in scripture. Uh, There's a place in Isaiah in chapter 39, uh, essentially Hezekiah, the king of the Israelites, has has been very stupid at this point, and the king of Babylon has been to visit him, and this is before he's been trampled and taken into captivity, but king of Babylon comes to visit, and Hezekiah tries to impress him with his riches, and he shows the king of Babylon all the gold and riches in, that the king has in all his storehouses and in the temple. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, you idiot, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That word eunuchs is the same word. It can be translated officials. But God, and this is not the only place, but God specifically sent word to Israel, to her people and to her kings through the prophets that Babylon was going to conquer them and take them into captivity because the Lord was no longer going to look away from their sin. So let's, uh, on that rather dire note, uh, solemn note, let's let's stop the class and end with a prayer and we'll take up next week when we when we get started, we will take up Daniel chapter two.